This podcast is brought to you by Simply Light. Introducing Simply Light Lemonade. Can you hear that? That's the sweet sound of 75% less sugar and calories. We want to make sure you hear it's 75% less sugar and calories because it tastes so good. From the podglomerate, you're listening to The Feast. I'm Dr. Laura Carlson, and I explore the history of food. From empires of sugar to lunch counter revolutions. Whether it's mom's home cooking or opulent hundred-course dinners, food has fueled politics, technology, religion, and more. History is full of food, and on each episode of The Feast, we're bringing you the meals that made it. Happy New Year, everyone. The Feast is back. And to start the year off right, we wanted to do something that was appropriate for January, this season of resolutions. Hopefully, since we're only in the first month of the new year, yours are still going strong. And as far as resolutions go, after the excess of the holidays, food often features pretty highly in one way or another, on many people's resolutions list. Now, according to YouGov, which is an independent market research and data analytics firm, eating healthier was among one of the top three most popular resolutions this year, with more than one-third of adults in the U.S. including it on their resolutions list. Now, eating healthier can mean any number of things. Cutting out the candy, the soda, maybe the booze... But for many people, that New Year's resolution to eat better means cutting out one thing in particular. Meat. Plant-based, or plant-forward diets, are on the rise, with numerous companies, restaurants, and communities jumping on the meat-free bandwagon. And of course, there's not just one meat-free lifestyle. There are dozens. With everything from full vegan, meaning no dairy or eggs, even occasionally extending to other animal-based products like honey, to other things known as ovo-lacto-vegetarianism, that is, no meat, but all the eggs and cheese you could ever want. There's also pescatarianism, no meat, but bring on the seafood, and even something called poyotarianism, which means you'll happily enjoy fried chicken, but no steaks or grilled snapper. Statistics vary, but the Vegan Society, which is granted not exactly an unbiased source, insists that the number of folks who have cut out not only meat and seafood, but dairy and eggs, have more than tripled in the last five years alone. And in 2016, it was estimated that there were over 1.2 million vegetarians in the UK alone. Now, this embracing of the plant-forward lifestyle may sound very 21st century, with all its hashtagging of vegan life or clean living, but the non-meat lifestyle is actually thousands of years old. Much of this could be traced to some of the world's most influential religions, many of which have very specific dietary laws, everything from an avoidance of specific foods like pork or shellfish, in faiths such as Judaism and Islam, 
to an entirely vegetarian lifestyle, as frequently seen in Buddhism, Jainism, and Sikhism. But religion was not the only motivator to give up your Kentucky Fried Chicken bucket in the ancient world. Many Greek philosophers, from Pythagoras to even Epicurus himself, you know, the founder of Epicureanism, adopted a vegetarian lifestyle. For these ancient Greeks, the perks of vegetarianism varied. Many believed that humans and animals both possessed immortal souls, making that tasty steak a pretty touchy issue. From a more medical or nutritional perspective, meat was also believed at one time to incite fervent passions. Meat eaters were angry, hot-headed people, quick to violence. So if you wanted to remain cool, calm, and collected, better not take your chances with that fried chicken. But as much as math students may love or loathe his famous theorem, it's hard to link Pythagoras's vegetarian ethos from the 6th century BCE to 21st century buffalo fried cauliflower or tempeh fish and chips. Even back in Pythagoras' day, the terms vegetarian or even vegan didn't exist. Such words wouldn't really enter common usage for another 2,000 years or more. But hold on there, tofu lovers. I'm not talking about the 2010's kale smoothies fad or even the rise of the tofu steak in the 1990s. As much as it might be trending right now on Instagram, the popularity of vegetarian and vegan diets in Western Europe and even in North America, aren't so 21st century after all. They're not even 20th century. To get to the real Kickstarter of the modern vegetarian movement, we're not heading to some health club in L.A., but to the industrial city of Manchester, England, in the year 1848. Picture the city. It's late September here in the north of England in 1848, and that little thing called the Industrial Revolution is going strong. And Manchester? Well, the city is loving every minute of it. What once was a relatively small town, overshadowed by London in the south and even Glasgow in the north, Manchester was now, by all accounts, making a name for itself through industry. Huge factories and mills, spinning and converting cotton into bedsheets, clothing, aprons, you name it, sprang up. Hundreds, if not thousands, of jobs lured men and women from their family farms into the city. And the city itself, understandably, became crowded with this new breed of industrial worker, one who rose early in the morning and, instead of going out to milk the cows or feed the chickens, stamped a punch card and sat at a loom or a factory line, making buttons or attaching hems. Yes, you can feel it, Society, English society, is changing. Ways of life, hundreds if not thousands of years old, are being discarded to embrace the new technology, the speed, the standardization that industrialization brings. And Manchester, raking in all that lovely industrial capital, is just barely keeping up. New housing developments have been hastily constructed to accommodate the new workforce. Infrastructure like sewers and rail lines, built to accommodate a small town, grown under the pressures of a booming industrial city. And shops to feed this new community, butchers, bakers, everything, 
are in constant demand as every day more and more people pour into the city. Now let's say you're one of these new factory workers. You spend most of your days in a cotton factory or a mill, and you work hard, starting usually before sunrise, often ending long after sunset. But comparatively, you earn good money. Well, at least better than what you would have done back at the farm. And those extra shillings or tuppence means you can afford to drop a few coins on your favorite magazine. The satirical punch. Think of it as almost the mid-19th century English equivalent of Saturday Night Live. Well, in paper form. Within Punch's pages, you can read articles lambasting the day's politics, poking fun at MPs, even occasionally a few funny drawings that lampoon the upper classes, drawings that would later be considered the first true political cartoons. But today, that sunny day in September 1848, you open Punch's pages to read about something, well, a little more unusual. There you read of a strange banquet, held right here recently at Manchester's luxury Hayward's Hotel, in honor of a group that, well, according to Punch, quote, devotes its entire energies to the eating of vegetables, and the members meet occasionally for the purpose of masticating mashed potatoes and munching cabbage leaves. This cabbage-focused banquet Punch described was what is commonly now known as the first annual general meeting of England's Vegetarian Society, made up of some 200 men and women who had passionately sworn off the eating of meat, with some going so far as to swear off dairy and eggs as well. It had been formed barely a year ago in 1847, and now this new society had celebrated the successes of its first year as a formal institution, toasting their health with, as Punch described, plain, cold water. But as much as Punch may have made fun of this odd company of mashed potato masticators, the concept of a meat-free diet in industrial England was by no means new. Over a hundred years ago, the English writer Thomas Tryon had written about the benefits of a vegetarian diet, even going so far as to recommend against also the consumption of alcohol along with butter and fried foods as being unhealthy. His Bill of Fare of 75 Noble Dishes of Excellent Food, published in 1691, is often considered to be the first truly vegetarian cookbook written in English. Although Tryon's plea for vegetarianism seems to have won few converts during his lifetime, apparently even his wife insisted that meat continue to be served at dinners at their home, his influence did carry on to a new wave of meat-free devotees at the turn of the 19th century most notably, perhaps, with the poet Percy Shelley, who even wrote an entire treatise on the benefits of vegetarianism in 1813 with his A Vindication of Natural Diet. But vegetarianism wasn't just for poets and writers. By 1813, a small but dedicated Christian denomination, often known ironically as the Cowherdites, had also embraced a meat-free lifestyle as a fundamental part of their religious beliefs. Influenced by the Swedish mystic Emanuel Swedenborg and the English minister William Cowherd, from whom the group took their name, the Cowherdites believed that to eat meat was sinful, a representation of humanity's fall from divine grace. 
While cowherds and Swedenborg's theories on vegetarianism may have been more metaphysical, a few other factors in early 19th century England may have helped many to see the benefits of a vegetarian lifestyle. Meat, after all, was expensive. Only a small percentage of England's populace could afford to eat meat, let alone fresh meat, regularly. The best-selling cookbook of the day, Mrs. Rundle's System of Practical Domestic Economy, provided sample budgets for a standard English family of five, with two parents and three children. And among the five of them, Rundle's book allocates only six pounds of meat per week, with the rest of the family's diet made up of bread, potatoes, a small bit of cheese, and milk. Cutting out meat altogether was a time-honored way of saving money for the family on a tight budget. And vegetarians, just as today, often critiqued the waste of resources meat production had on the land and natural resources. Published notes from an early vegetarian conference pointed out the waste of devoting, quote, five acres of ground, only producing flesh for one man per year, where twelve and a half men could subsist from the same amount of land producing wheat, and a full seventy-seven and a half men from other vegetable food. And worries about the expense or natural resources devoted to meat weren't the only things that may have tipped the balance in favor of a meat free diet. As cities like Manchester exploded in terms of population, so did worries about the contamination of food products in large urban centers. In 1820, the writer Frederick Ackham published a horrifying account of the food industry called There is Death in the Pot, which described how adulterants, sometimes poisonous ones, were being used at almost every tier of food production. From bakers adding alum, that is, aluminum sulfate, to supplement expensive white bread flour, to breweries adding poisons, like cocculus and decus, as cheap alternatives to hops and malt. Pickles were colored with copper. Gloucester cheese was colored with lead. And by 1848, the same year as the first beating of the Vegetarian Society, fears about food adulteration had only magnified. And with their focus on simple, vegetable-forward dishes— the message of the Vegetarian Society might never have sounded so sweet. Well, almost sweet. Removing meat altogether from the English diet was harder than it looked. Although today we know that vitamin deficiencies were responsible for serious conditions like scurvy or rickets, conditions that may have been easily solved with a few more oranges at breakfast or some leafy spinach on the dinner plate, during the 19th century, it was meat usually beef, that was seen as the bringer of health. It brought a glow to your cheeks, made you strong. The sick and the weak were often given doses of beef tea, basically beef stock, to help them get back their strength. And while vegetables weren't exactly considered unhealthy, for many, the potential dangers of a carrot or a leaf of spinach may have outweighed any good. Like many other diseases, cholera flourished in the crowded, cramped conditions of newly industrialized cities like Manchester. After its first documented appearance in 1832 in Britain, cholera would go on to claim thousands of lives in England, and millions more worldwide. Cholera seemed to affect at random. The problem was, no one knew what was causing it. Theories from the medical to the scientific to the crackpot flourished. Was cholera carried on the wind? 
infecting any that inhaled it? Or was it, as many feared, lurking in vegetables somehow and unripe fruit? Many, seeking to avoid the horrific disease, avoided vegetables entirely in consequence. And to be honest, they weren't half wrong. As the work of Dr. John Snow would later prove, the problem with cholera was in the water supply. Contaminated wells which served entire communities in dense urban areas could spread cholera bacteria far and wide. And vegetables and fruit washed in this water often served as the perfect conduits to transmit the disease. So, taking all this into consideration, back in 1848, the Vegetarian Society had a pretty tough road before it if they had any hope of convincing a meat-loving, cholera-fearing nation that a diet of peas, beetroot, and mushrooms was the way forward. So you might understand Punch's rather bemused take on their banquet at their first annual general meeting in which, as they say, sage and onions, beetroot, mushrooms, and parsley were the principal luxuries. We do not quite understand the principle upon which these gentlemen object to animal food, but if health is their object— we do not think that will be promoted by the mixture of messes they sat down to the other day at Manchester. Now, in fairness, Punch's questioning of the healthiness of the Vegetarian Society's meal in 1848 had little, if anything, to do with fears about cholera, lurking in vegetables. But it was a health-based critique all the same. Consider for a moment the dishes that appeared at the July banquet, which included savory and macaroni omelets, rice fritters, onion and sage fritters, bread and parsley fritters, forcemeat fritters, which were actually vegetarian, in case you were wondering, plum pudding, molded rice, and flummery. Yes? Flummery. Which, if you're wondering, is a kind of custardy dessert made with sugar, eggs, and other flavorings. So, vegetarian, yes, but not exactly kale salad and grilled tofu by today's health food standards. Although many vegetarians had not only cut out meat, but also alcohol, and for some even salt and other flavorings from their diet, apparently no one had any problems with sugar being in almost every single dish that night. As Punch Riley commented, We look upon the vegetarian humbug as a mere pretext— for indulging a juvenile appetite for something nice, and we really are ashamed of these old boys who continue, at their time of life, to display such a puerile taste for pies and puddings. But did Punch have a point? Take a look at one of the most popular vegetarian cookbooks at the time, known simply as Vegetable Cookery, written by Joseph and Martha Brotherton who would go on to become a veritable power couple in the ranks of the Vegetarian Society. Joseph Brotherton actually became a member of Parliament, but more on that later. Anyway, in their cookbook, first published in 1812 but republished several times throughout the early 19th century, sugar makes a surprisingly frequent appearance, even in what today we might consider savory dishes. For example... Carrot fritters, made up of boiled and then mashed carrot, egg, milk, nutmeg, and sugar, are fried in butter, and then dusted with even more sugar before serving. A section on salads, which takes up all of two pages in a 400-page book, includes a recipe for what is called salad for winter, 
in which raw colewort, which is like collard greens or kale, sorrel, endive, celery, parsley, and onions are seasoned with salt, cream, and vinegar, and then topped with sugar. We actually made some of these dishes recently from this early 19th century cookbook, including a pea soup, those sugary carrot fritters, and a rice flummery. Because when do you turn down the chance to make something called flummery? We'll put a link to the cookbook on our website at thefeastpodcast.org, along with some photos of our efforts if you want to see a modern take on a few 19th century vegetarian dishes. Tonight on NBC. Will everyone in the cardiac surgical department please raise your hands? Thank you. You're all fired. Based on an inspiring true story. Any department who places billing above care, you will be terminated. One doctor will break every rule. Just tell me what you need, what your patients need. To inspire a revolution. Let's get into some trouble. Let's be doctors again. From the network that brings you This Is Us, New Amsterdam, tonight on NBC. This podcast is brought to you by Simply Light. Introducing Simply Light Lemonade. Can you hear that? That's the sweet sound of 75% less sugar and calories. We want to make sure you hear it's 75% less sugar and calories because it tastes so good. But back to our story. As much as Punch may have wanted to trivialize the Vegetarian Society's agenda into a poorly disguised obsession with sugar, many of the ideals wrapped up in their meat-free lifestyle were beginning to gain traction on a national level. Many of the Society's members had abandoned meat for moral reasons, standing against how livestock were treated at the time, horrified at the conditions of slaughterhouses and butchers. And often, this concern for conditions and humane treatment wasn't just reserved for animals, but extended to a concern for society at large as well. As the first elected MP for Salford, a borough of Greater Manchester, Joseph Brotherton used his position to argue for reduced working hours for children in factories, one of the first attempts to get child labor laws on the books in England. He was also among the first MPs to publicly condemn capital punishment. And with national coverage from Punch, even satirical coverage, folks outside of Manchester began to learn about the vegetarian lifestyle. In the society's first five years, it more than doubled its membership, growing to just under 900 members by 1853. And more than half of these, according to Colin Spencer, who's written a wonderful book about the history of vegetarianism, were middle class. That is, tradesmen, mechanics, and laborers. So this wasn't just an upper-class elite diet, but one intended and embraced by all of society. Over in North America, vegetarian societies were popping up too. A group of English cowherdites, led by Reverend William Metcalfe, traveled to America in 1817 to preach and live a Christian vegetarian lifestyle. Metcalfe eventually joined forces with one Sylvester Graham, who was doing his own preaching circuit about the vegetarian lifestyle. But Graham went a little further, recommending an entire health plan based around a very specific form of bread using a flour that incorporated both the wheat germ and bran, elements that were usually discarded when making the popular white bread of the time. Sylvester Graham's special flour, which kept both the wheat germ and bran in, 
eventually, understandably, came to be known as Graham flour. Now, some of you probably know where I'm going with this, but Graham flour led to Graham bread, and through a few culinary twists and turns, gave us Graham crackers. Although today's sugary s'more base probably has little, if anything, to do with the original recipe, and probably has old Sylvester turning in his grave. If you want to have a go at making the original Graham bread according to Sylvester Graham's specifications, we'll include a recipe for it on our website. And today you still can find a few companies that specifically make Graham flour, but it's also possible to do an amended homemade version, although it does mean buying wheat germ and wheat bran and adding it to your flour. Anyway, we'll put up photos and again recipes on our website. The only thing I'll say is that I don't recommend this particular version as a s'more base. This stuff has little, if any, commonality with mass-market graham crackers. Try it if you want, but don't say I didn't warn you. But let's head back to England. The Vegetarian Society continued throughout the 1860s and 1870s, and although membership waned a bit, it soared back into popularity in late Victorian England in the 1880s and 1890s. By then, you could find entirely vegetarian hotels and restaurants, with the first opening its doors in May of 1876, which served a hearty meal of vegetable soup, pie, potatoes, cauliflower, gooseberries, rice, and stewed rhubarb. This hefty meal set the would-be vegetarian diner back one shilling and four pennies. And by the end of the 19th century, there were actually seven explicitly meat-free restaurants in London alone, including perhaps the most famous, Alpha Food Reform Restaurant, whose ads and local papers advertised boldly, No fish, no flesh, no fowl, no intoxicants. Located in the very heart of London at 429 Oxford Street, diners at Alpha could enjoy lentil soup, macaroni, and fruit rolls for a few shillings apiece. Restaurants like the Alpha epitomized a new crop of vegetarian societies that had begun to pop up in late 19th century England. New London-based organizations that preached the message of a vegetable-only diet built dance halls, lecture theaters, even organized public outings around town. Like the wonderfully named Vegetarian Rambling Society, which had, as part of its main office, a tea room and drawing room for vegetarians to relax and take in a spot of tea. Such societies also began to attract some notable adherence to their causes. George Bernard Shaw, for example, the famous playwright, became an outspoken supporter of the vegetarian movement, often writing eccentric pieces on the correct methods of cooking oatmeal. Even more notably, Mahatma Gandhi, who had traveled to England in 1888, also became a prominent member of London's Vegetarian Society, contributing numerous articles to its regular journal, and could often be found enjoying a meat-free dinner with friends at one of the society's numerous city restaurants. And even into the 20th century, the vegetarian movement remained linked with broader social issues. Opening in 1908, the Gardenia Restaurant, located in London's Covent Garden, and which served exclusively vegetarian food, soon became a known meeting place for women involved in the suffragette movement. Located conveniently close to the Women's Freedom League headquarters, the Gardenia was a convenient spot for activists to meet for breakfast or tea to discuss plans, hold fundraising suppers, 
and even occasionally serve as a secret meetup to evade census takers or gather forces before window-smashing campaigns, a not infrequent activity of the militant Women's Social and Political Union on their quest for women's votes. So from philosophy in ancient Greece, to the Industrial Revolution in Manchester, to the women's suffrage movement in the 20th century, the vegetarian lifestyles had more than a carrot's worth of relevance in many key intellectual, economic, and social movements throughout history. And many of today's vegetarian and vegan advocates seem more than willing to continue this tradition into the 21st century, with calls against factory farming, programs to foster sustainable agriculture, as well as the promotion of new technologies to address worldwide concerns about food resources. It's a pretty historic lineage to be part of, and if that isn't inspiring enough to keep up a plant-forward, pescatarian, vegan, or even poyotarian New Year's resolution, then what is? The Feast is written and produced by me, Laura Carlson, with technical direction by Mike Port. For more information on Victorian vegetarians, or even the history of vegetarianism itself throughout history, I highly recommend Colin Spencer's book, Vegetarianism, A History. Also make sure to check out James Gregory's Of Victorians and Vegetarians. A shout-out goes to our brand-new Patreon supporter, Sean Greening. And if you'd like to support The Feast please visit patreon.com slash feastpodcast to learn more about our mission to bring the great meals of history to your ears. And before we go, I want to tell you about a new show on the Podglomerate Network, Consumed with Scott Porch. The show features interviews with writers and directors, actors and authors, podcasters and producers, comedians and critics about what's new to watch, read, listen to, or play. Guests from the tech community will talk about new devices, apps, and streaming services. And if you listen, you'll get some great new ideas for what's new on your phone, tablet, or TV. Check it out today on Apple Podcasts or wherever good podcasts can be found. Music today by Jazar and the Victor Herbert Orchestra. Well, that's all for us this week. We'll see you again in two weeks' time with more meals that made history. I'm Laura Carlson, and this is The Feast. The Podglomerate, a sonic universe.